Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology, the good things it can do for people and the planet. My name's Kevin Folta. I'm a professor and podcast host broadcasting from a double-wide exotics farm in Archer, Florida. So here we go. Today's topic is a really interesting one because after all the talk about vaccines, we think about vaccines about, you know, for COVID-19 now. Vaccines for uh, measles have been in the news. But what about vaccines for cancers and other types of insidious diseases where uh, this kind of a prophylactic treatment may be of use? And so we're going to talk to that talk about that today with Dr. Adam Snook. He's an, he's an assistant professor at the Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center, Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, I really appreciate having you on. You've been in the news recently in the popular press, which is where I originally found the story. And I didn't know much about this, but as I began to peel the onion, I really thought this was exciting work. So let's talk about of a vaccine for cancer, but you know, cancer is a very complicated thing. It's not just one disease. It's many different kinds of cell proliferative disorders. And so when we're talking about the kind of cancers that you've been studying, what are we referring to with gastrointestinal cancers? So gastrointestinal cancers, uh, those would be pretty much anything along the gastrointestinal tract. This would be esophagus and stomach, the intestine, which would be the small intestine, the large intestine, rectum, also uh, pancreas and liver, which sort of uh, innervate with the, the GI tract, and the gallbladder and bile duct. These would all qualify as uh, GI cancers. And do all of them have any shared commonality from like a, a cellular side that gives them kind of a common identity? There are similar similarities and differences. Uh, even colorectal cancer, we kind of lump it together as colon and rectum thinking of it as one disease, but it's actually a couple different diseases. Within colon cancer, there are a variety of different diseases. They do have some similarities. Esophageal and gastric cancers, they actually frequently undergo this, this process where the normal tissue starts to look like colon cancer and then turns into gastric cancer or esophageal cancer. It's a metaplasia where the, the cells actually start to look differently and even acquire some characteristics of normal colon and colon cancer. Well, I know that uh, colon cancer has like several committed steps that have to happen at a genetic level before it turns into a, a fully metastatic type of cancer. And so is that kind of the where the road splits, like, you know, like you've made a couple of these committed steps and then it goes in its separate ways from other types? Exactly. There are a couple different sort of uh, genetic pathways that uh, a cell or a tissue can go down uh, in order to develop cancer based on the different mutations that occur. Colon cancer, almost all of them have a mutation in APC. It's a tumor suppressor found in 85% of, of colon cancers as being mutated. Um, but within that, there are there can be some branches after that uh, with different 
mutations that, that are, are piled on top of that APC mutation. And how prevalent are these cancers? Can you give us some sort of sense of uh, how many people are affected and how many people uh, have uh, are uh, die from it? Yeah, GI cancers are actually uh, among the most prevalent in the in the world. There are about five million cases of GI cancer in the world each year, and 1.5 million deaths. In the U.S., colon and pancreatic cancers are actually the second and third leading causes of death from cancer, behind only lung cancer. And these, unfortunately, are some of the most difficult to treat cancers. For example, more than 90% of pancreatic cancer patients will die of their disease in less than five years, and Unfortunately, these cancers have also not responded very well to some of the new immunotherapies that have entered the clinic in the last five to 10 years. And really, that's where we're going with your work. You know, we've spoken about immunotherapies before on the podcast, and um, and they always key off of having some sort of a, a virus or some sort of a vehicle. Well, not always, I guess, but where there's some sort of engineered entity, they target a cell that has some sort of an antigenic signature. There's something that's there that the cell can recognize that says, I'm problematic. And so what is that in gastrointestinal cancers? Right. Our immune system needs some kind of molecule to identify the cells that it should attack and hopefully differentiate those cancer cells from normal cells. We generally think of these molecules as one of two different varieties, either neoantigens or self-antigens. Neoantigens are, are basically new to the immune system. That's how they, they got their name. These are typically mutated versions of our own proteins, which drive the cancer-forming process, or they could be viral antigens like HPV proteins, which are found in cervical cancers. Neoantigens tend to be a bit more difficult to target because they could be fairly unique to each patient, and it's, it's harder to come up with a therapy that you could apply to a lot of different patients. Self-antigens, on the other hand, are completely normal proteins. They're made in some of our tissues and cells and by a cancer. In GI cancers, there's a, several under investigation. The two most studied ones are called CEA in colon cancer and MUC1 in a variety of different GI cancers. And you may have you may have already answered this kind of, but if there is this neoantigen, why doesn't the body recognize it and say this isn't self, so I need to mount a defense against it? There's a, a couple of reasons. Um, one is that in some cases, our immune system actually does. This is actually pretty common in melanoma, where patients will have immune responses against their melanoma proteins um, that you can measure right in their blood, but their melanoma is still growing. Typically, this is because it's formed some other process to overcome that. Uh, one of the common ones is expression of a checkpoint. These are molecules, inhibitory molecules, that actually suppress the immune system. And so when the immune system tries to come into the melanoma, for example, it's blocking those immune responses from working properly. Uh, PD-1 is the common one that, that we know about and is targeted with some newer immunotherapies. In other cancers, maybe those responses never really form. Maybe that tumor isn't very immunogenic to begin with. Um, so there, there can actually be a variety of different reasons. Yeah, so I see what you're talking about here. The that tumors are essentially self tissue, but once in a while they'll create a signature that says um, that makes it unique to either the cancer or the virus. And so that that's what these immunotherapies can key off of. And and so you've been looking at one that's called uh, guanylyl cyclase C, 
or uh, maybe you have another way to say that, but it, but what does that molecule do and why is this a useful candidate? Yeah. Uh, guanylcyclase C, we typically call it GCC. It's a little bit easier to say. It's a, a somewhat newer self-antigen that we identified in GI cancers uh, a little over 10 years ago during my PhD thesis work. It is a molecule that typically plays an important role in intestinal homeostasis. So it regulates water and electrolyte balance in the intestine. Many people are actually indirectly familiar with its role. There are E. coli out there in certain parts of the world that produce toxins that bind to GCC and overactivating it. Uh, resulting in large quantities of water secretion into the intestine. And if you've ever experienced traveler's diarrhea in Mexico, for example, that was actually due to a bacterial toxin that bound to an overactivated GCC. And remarkably, pharmaceutical companies have actually found a way to take advantage of that. There have been a few different drugs that have been developed and FDA approved to treat chronic constipation in older individuals using molecules based on that toxin. Oh, very interesting. So but this, so this is called guanyl cyclase C. It's not, uh, they, some, for some reason, when I read this, I thought immediately guanylyl cyclase, which was, which was, or guanylate cyclase, which would be something completely different and much more pervasive in the body. And maybe you wouldn't want to target. So this is, this is guanyl cyclase. So there's been a, a back and forth in the field <laughs> between guanylyl cyclase and guanylate cyclase. Uh, I've stuck with guanylyl. Luckily, that's where the field has, has moved back to right now. Uh, so yeah, it's guanylocyclase. They're actually, it's part of a family of guanylocyclases. There are, are several of them found in the body. Uh, some of those regulates cardiovascular function. Some of those regulate vision. GCC regulates intestinal biology. Uh, it's main, mainly found in the intestine. And they, they have these different jobs um, by binding to different molecules to activate them. So GCC has certain hormones that binds to it and activates it. Other guanylocyclases have different hormones that bind to those and activate those. But they all end up doing the same sort of downstream job. Each of those is an enzyme that creates a second messenger called cyclic GMP, which goes and binds other molecules inside the cells and, and carries out different processes. Okay, so it is the same thing that I was thinking of. Because I, I default to guanylate cyclase in the eye and, you know, in, used in vision and um, in, in opsin uh, signaling. And uh, so that's so now I understand this a little bit better. So this molecule tends to be specifically expressed in the cells of the GI tract, right? So this particular variant, uh, does it have a lot of sequence difference from the others that allow it to pro project a very different signature to uh, potential therapy? It, it has unique regions. So the portion of the molecule that produces cyclic GMP is very, very highly conserved among all the guanyl cyclases. But the portion that binds to the hormone is very specific to GCC. It's very unique. And that's actually the part of the molecule that we focus on. All of the enzymatic parts, we, we essentially ignore. We remove those from any of our, our immunotherapy work so that we don't accidentally target those other guanyl cyclases. Ah, very cool. So we, you know, we've talked about CAR T cells on the podcast before, and these are basically immune cells that have been genetically reprogrammed so that they recognize to eliminate a cell bearing a cancer-specific antigen. And how is this being used in GI cancers? There are a couple of different people working on CAR T cells uh, targeting GI cancers. 
Um, those molecules that I mentioned, CEA and MUC1, other people have developed CAR T-cells targeting those. They're in various stages of, of development. And we've also developed CAR T-cells targeting GCC. So far, we, um, we've completed a couple different preclinical uh, studies, and we're hoping to move that into clinical trials uh, in the, you know, the next couple of years. Well, this is really a good setup because it gives us an idea to uh, uh, setting the stage, essentially, for the work that's been talked about recently. So we're speaking with Dr. Adam Snook. He's an assistant professor at the Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment. It was over eight years ago that three lumpy rats scared the world. You might remember the famous paper by Theralini et al., where claimed that rats fed GE corn or the herbicide Roundup had a high incidence of grotesque tumors. They looked like tube socks stuffed with ping pong balls. Scientists immediately jumped on the work, criticizing it, citing that it mainly appeared staged, that the numbers were too small, and that the rat model used was designed to grow tumors in that time frame. In the subsequent eight years, Nobody has reproduced those data. Four very well-funded and conducted experiments refuted the shocking 2012 paper. But that image has become part of the myth. The paper shut down those use of GE crops in food insecure nations like Kenya and scared the bejesus out of affluent white people in the U.S. and EU. Lumpy Rats became an icon of the dangers of technology, despite the fact there was no danger. This information has consequences. Use this podcast to arm yourself against bad information. Share the science. Engage. Tell the truth. We have a moral obligation to stand up for those who can benefit from technology and all must do our part to fight the deliberate, intentional, false information, especially during a global pandemic. Now back to the Talking Biotech Podcast. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Adam Snook. He's an assistant professor at the Sydney Kimmel Cancer Center in Philadelphia. We're talking about gastrointestinal cancer vaccines and some new technologies that have been moving along through the pipeline and trying to understand how this may be a new line of defense in helping cancers get into remission uh, from a very penetrant and uh, dangerous types of cancers. So recently your work made wider news because it mentioned that there was a vaccine for digestive cancers that was uh, that was based on GCC. And is this really just injecting that, that variant region into the body and having the body mount a response to it? Conceptually, yeah, it is delivering GCC to our immune system in a way to train them, get them going, so that they will target GCC and eliminate cancer cells that express GCC. Uh, however, simply injecting GCC protein would not really work uh, very well. It would not generate the kind of response that we want. Protein injections typically produce antibodies, which are really great at blocking pathogens, but they're poor at killing cancer cells. 
Instead, we need to elicit a killer T-cell response. We typically call these cytotoxic T-lymphocytes, or CTLs. CTLs evolved to find virally infected cells in our body and kill those cells so they can no longer make new virions. And in order to induce CTLs targeting GCC, that will ultimately go and kill cancer cells, we needed to create a virus that expresses GCC and administer that virus to trick the immune system into creating those CTLs targeting GCC as if it was one of the viral proteins. Oh, I see. And so um, everything I understood about this is much more of a gene therapy type of context, and and you're using um, adenovirus. And so why do people choose adenovirus? It actually has several advantages. It's pretty easy to produce at large scales. It can accept pretty large uh, gene regions into its genome. It's also fairly immunogenic, meaning it's good at eliciting immune responses against the genes that it's carrying. Uh, They do have some disadvantages, though. Yeah, I guess that's uh, where your recent work came into play is that you know the body has experienced adenovirus before for different types of colds and other things. And so the body just was clearing your therapy. Is, is that what was happening? Yep, exactly. The immune system is doing exactly what it evolved to do. Um, when we are exposed to a pathogen, we generate immune response over a period of a couple of weeks that clears it out and also produces long-lived cells and antibodies that will prevent uh, reinfection. And adenoviruses, like you said, are are very common. They produce a cold-like disease in people. And so we've all been exposed to them, and we all have varying levels of those long-lived antibodies and cells. And those antibodies are able to bind the GCC vaccine and clear it before it can infect cells and induce immunity to GCC. And just to clarify for the audience, so you're really giving somebody a virus, you're giving them an infection that's expressing the protein at a high level. And, and that's what's triggering the killer T cells to uh, hone in on the cancer cells that are also expressing the GCC protein, right? Is that where we're at? Exactly. Um, in order to generate the kind of immune response we want, it really does have to be like a gene therapy. We have to get the virus to infect cells, then produce the GCC that's what our immune system goes after uh, when it comes to viruses and is also the kind of response that we need to target cancer cells. And maybe this is a little more technical question, uh, but there's been a lot of discussion about using things like polio virus or herpes virus or some of these other viruses that do a really good job at, uh, at infection. And are really, that's why they are as, uh, as, as infective as they have been. Why is adenovirus a advantage over those other types of viruses? When, uh, yeah, this is a very good question. When I first started um, doing this work, it was almost 20 years ago, we wanted to focus on GCC. That was what we were interested in. We wanted to target that. And we kind of looked around and we said, what viral vectors are available? There's adenovirus, there's pox viruses. There wasn't really anything else at the time. <laughs> um, so we said adenovirus seems to be the best uh, of what we've got. We'll start with that. And by the time we get to, you know, much farther along in this process and we're in people, someone will have solved this problem and there will be more vectors available. Um, But that actually hasn't really happened too well, partly because the immune system is always going to do what it's designed to do. We can use a vector once like adenovirus and the immune system will prevent it from working a second time around. Um, other vectors can be more difficult to use. Adenovirus has been around forever, so it, the processes are actually very good uh, for working with adenovirus. Something like poliovirus is brand new, and it's a little bit more tricky to, to figure out how to work with. 
brand new from a, a vector perspective. Um, there's a lot of press today about mRNA vaccines for COVID. That's a an approach that nobody has ever really used in, in people before. It has a lot of advantages too, in that it could be easy to scale up. We can do it many, many times, but we don't yet know if it's actually going to uh, work very well uh, as a vaccine. In a lot of ways, vaccine technology hasn't evolved that much over the last 500 years when we, we sort of figured out how to do this. Still, our best vaccines are to take a pathogen, kill it, and inject it. And our immune response will, will do everything that it's supposed to do after that. But actually, creating targeted vaccines to do very specific things that we want to do is much more difficult. And, and that's actually the main reason that we haven't figured out how to apply them very well yet in cancers. Yeah, I always kind of have to ask the question about polio virus or uh, uh, herpes virus, just because it is such an ironic turn that here you're taking this disease that we've eliminated with with, uh, with polio virus, um, almost eradicated from the planet, and have now repackaged that virus for all of its, we're exploiting it now to do good things. And it just always seemed like an interesting approach to me because of that. I can do one better than that. Uh, there's a, another investigator at my institution that uses rabies virus as a vector. So they are using engineered rabies virus to carry HIV proteins and now COVID proteins as well as a, as a vector to try to induce immune responses in people. Yeah, that's super cool. It's uh, it's really interesting. But, but one of the big problems we've had with the adenovirus, with the adenovirus approach has been the fact that our bodies have seen adenovirus. And so what was the workaround that your laboratory is using in order to make it a little better better delivery vehicle? Yeah, the, our workaround was actually fairly simple um, from a conceptual perspective. At this point, everyone is familiar with the structure of coronavirus as a sort of a spiky ball where the spikes target the virus to cells and antibodies that bind the spikes can block the virus. Adenovirus is structurally pretty similar. So we replaced the spikes in our adenovirus with spikes from a very uncommon adenovirus, making what we call a chimeric adenovirus. So it's got parts from one adenovirus and parts from another. Because the spike came from an uncommon adenovirus, very few people have antibodies to those spikes. And this chimeric virus should be able to work in far more people. I see. So it, it still carries the same payload, but has a different envelope, basically. You just have a different way of packaging the uh, GCC genetic information. So it still makes the protein, but isn't recognized and eliminated. Exactly. Okay. That's really cool. So where has this been tested so far, either in uh, non-human animals or humans? In uh, 2019, we published results from our phase one trial, which we tested what I'll call version 1.0 of our vaccine. It used the conventional adenovirus. That study showed that the vaccine was safe and induced CTLs in people who had very little immunity to adenovirus, but it did not produce a good response in people with high immunity to adenovirus. We very recently published our preclinical work using the new 2.0 vaccine with a modified spike protein, and we will open a, a new clinical trial with that vaccine very, very soon. We were delayed by the COVID-19 pandemic, but we should start enrolling patients this fall. Oh, that's really great. So this fall, like 2020. Yep, exactly. Yeah, this is one that, you know, I'm really just hoping for because I just know so many people who've been affected by different gastrointestinal cancers, even in precancerous states. And so it's just something that, you know, to, to, that I think is so uh, important. So what have the results been like so far? 
so far we know that the vaccine can induce a kind of a response that we want, those CTLs targeting GCC. It's safe. We don't yet know if it actually provides a, an overall benefit to the patient. We will get some of that kind of data in this upcoming trial, but to really know for sure, we'll have to do much larger double-blinded clinical trials that are designed specifically to test the efficacy. Uh, are there animal models that produce GCC signatures on gastrointestinal neoplasias? Yeah, uh, we have a lot of colon cancer models. That's where most of our work is. Uh, so there are colon cancer models and a couple other models. We use those those uh, extensively for our preclinical work where the vaccine is, is very effective in those models. Well, so that's really cool. I, I, I had a feeling that, you know, of course you would do that first, but um, it, it just, it's really great that they can do that. So the extensive number of models that they have in uh, animal systems. So do you think that um, such uh, approaches will be most used as kind of a prophylaxis for people in general, or will this be something that will go hand in hand with uh, chemotherapy or other types of um, therapies, which are currently used in addressing gastrointestinal cancers? We've kind of envisioned the latter. So we designed the vaccine uh, to be what is known as an adjuvant therapy. For many people with cancer, um, it's already spread at very low levels before they've had surgery. So the people re receive their surgery and then typically chemo right after that to hopefully eliminate those, those cells that have already spread. And that's where we uh, hope our vaccine could come in and provide another layer of cell elimination. So we would give to those patients after the surgery to hopefully elicit that immune response and kill those cancer cells that have spread. It would hopefully be less toxic and more effective than chemotherapy. You know, maybe someday it could move to a point where we would replace chemotherapy. The way that uh, clinical trials work now is you basically have to layer new things on top of the established things that already work um, to first find out if they're safe and effective, and then maybe at some point move move the new stuff earlier up. Um, we don't think it's going to be particularly effective at treating patients with large cancer burdens that can't be removed by surgery. Um, our animal models show that, and, and other people doing other kinds of immunotherapy ha have shown the same kind of thing. But it might be useful in preventing cancer. There is some precedent with HPV vaccines to prevent cervical cancer. And uh, Olya Finn at the University of Pittsburgh has been pursuing vaccine approaches to prevent GI cancers. She works mostly on MUC1. It's definitely something that we're also thinking about pursuing. And there are patient populations who are at higher risk for colon cancer. Those could be people who have already had a polyp removed, and we know that they're at risk of having more polyps and cancer after that. There are also genetic um, factors. There's Lynch syndrome and familial adenomatous polyposis, or FAP. Those are two kinds of inherited colon cancer. So those patients have an extremely high risk of developing colon cancer, and maybe doing prophylactic vaccination in them would actually provide a benefit as well. That's really great. I mean, it, that's because that seems to be where I would like to see these things go. Uh, we in the idea of personalized medicine, where everybody can know their DNA sequence and uh, be screened for their risk, knowing that you may be susceptible because you're missing a tumor suppressor or you know for an adenocarcinoma like this, you would have an opportunity to receive that kind of potential preventative therapy. It, it really is. Do you think that that's a realistic thing in the next ten or twenty years? Yeah, I think it is realistic. Uh, things like vaccines we know are very, very safe. So there, there's going to be low risk with doing those kinds of things. And if they can provide uh, some benefit over the, the population, then I, I think they are worthwhile trying to do. And I, I kind of always am hesitant to do this because 
Um, I don't like asking researchers to get out the crystal ball, but <laughs> you know, in, in, in the realm of cancer, we all know people who've been affected. And as people are living longer, they're affected by these kinds of diseases. And do you have any kind of, I just a general guess is that if everything goes well, when your types of, uh, adjuvant therapies may be available. Yeah. Um, I don't mind speculating for, for our stuff specifically. Um, the, the typical course of development is, is probably five to 10 years from now, we would say, um, to finish this trial, to then do the larger trial would, would take several years, uh, just to accumulate enough patients and follow them for a long enough period of time to know that, that the cancer is actually improving their survival. There are lots of other immunotherapies that are coming, um, on board right now. If you look at the, the total landscape, we've had, um, a handful of different checkpoint inhibitors approved over the last, you know, five to 10 years and a, a few different CAR T cell therapies approved over the last few years. And there are many, many more that are either entering the clinic or in clinical trials and are poised to be approved in the, in the next five to 10 years. And when you say checkpoint inhibitors, do you mean just the, the uh, regulatory molecules that arrest a cell's development that are sometimes lost in cancer cells? No, I'm talking about immune checkpoints. Uh, yeah, it is. It's confusing that they both have the same name. So these are molecules like PD-1 and PDL one that's found on the cancer cells. PD-1 is an inhibitory molecule on T cells, goes into the tumor, sees PDL one on the cancer cell, and just shuts that T cell off. And uh, there's been a couple of antibodies developed that block that interaction, so those T cells can go into the tumors and just you know kind of go crazy and do what they're supposed to do. Those were um, initially approved a handful of years ago and are being approved in more and more different settings um, across different cancer types. In GI cancer, they don't work particularly well. There's only a relatively small set of GI cancer patients who benefit from these checkpoint inhibitor antibodies. I see. I automatically go cell cycle. So you got to, mm. <laughs> I'm not, you know, plant biologist, you know. So do you imagine that this kind of vaccine would be kind of a standalone treatment, or do you see this as part of a more integrated therapy approach for cancer patients? So the uh, the only other thing that I would say is that I, I think that the right way to think about this is, is to go back to your personalized approach where, you know, colon cancer is not one disease and not everyone with colon cancer is in the, in the same setting, that we think it makes sense to focus on the entire disease spectrum. So we are working on both the vaccine as well as chemicals uh, to prevent cancer, working on the vaccine to try to treat patients after surgery to prevent it from coming back, and then working on CAR T cells that will sort of be closer to the end stage of disease where we can hopefully give patients a new hope where all other therapies have failed them. Uh, so if you think about the entire spectrum, we want to kind of work on all of those and hopefully bring them together in a way to, to benefit lots and lots of patients. So can people follow your work online or in social media anywhere? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at Adam Snook PhD, and I have a website at adamsnook.science. I paid a little extra for that uh, .science domain. <laughs> yeah, I know. Those are kind of cool. I got to get mine before someone else does. <laughs> <laughs> they do that. They, they, they buy your domains and then put bad stuff up there, and then your university says, what are you doing? You know, yep. uh, It happens. That's the hazards of running a, bod, a, a popular biotechnology podcast. <laughs> Well, Dr. Adam Snook, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Yeah, and best wishes in everything you do. Can you work faster? <laughs> I am trying. I'm 
very much trying. Um, I have so many patients that email me and I even had, I very rarely go into work, but I actually went into work last week and found a letter under my door from a patient that, that sent me a, a handwritten letter, you know, just looking for new options because there's so few out there. Yeah, I, I, I understand and appreciate that. And, you know, as a guy who has to, who's on the uh, get a colonoscopy every three years list because uh, because every time they do it they find weirdness. It's uh, something that's always in my mind and something that uh, is is I, I hopefully will never have to worry about uh, getting treated at this level. But it's something that certainly many people suffer from and and uh, I appreciate your efforts very much. So thank you. Yeah, of course. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. As always, write your reviews and. Uh, Tell your friends because our numbers continue to grow and going five and a half years, going on episode 300, it's uh, gaining in popularity as we go along. And that's all because of you and your loyal listenership. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing with a friend. And we'll talk to you next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast reflects the personal views of Dr. Kevin Fulta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. But after all, it is science, so they probably are. But it has to be clear that there is no university affiliation with this podcast. Which is a damn shame, but I guess that's how it goes. So feel free to share this science communication effort. Recommend guests. And support us at a few shekels over on Patreon. We invest all funds back into promotion of the podcast to widen the audience, enhance production, and expand science communication efforts in many ways. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.